I've uh, been having dreams about this morning all week. (laughs) They haven't been pleasant dreams. Invariably, I get up here and I start teaching and I start losing track of the point I'm trying to make. And the more I try to concentrate, the more confused I get. And the more confused I get, the more confusing I get. I wake up in a cold sweat. Perhaps uh, the reason that I've been having these dreams is because I'd like to try something this morning that I've never uh, tried before, and that's to go through an entire book. In fact, the whole book of Ecclesiastes. That's two things I've never tried before, going through a book and going through Ecclesiastes. It, um, it is obvious that we're not going to be able to go verse by verse. There's just a little too much to do that. I would enjoy it, but I'm afraid you'd get rather hungry sitting out there. So what we're going to have to do is jump around a little. And that's uh, partly why things easily get confusing. When you jump around, it's easy to get lost. I'll be talking about one passage, and uh, as you're thinking about that or as your mind is drifting off, I move to another passage, and you didn't hear where. By the time you're back with us, you're lost. And it's easy for this to happen. So in order to forestall that, uh, we've printed up in the bulletin a list of the passages we'll be discussing. In the order, we'll be discussing them. This enables you to, if you do get lost, to just look down to the next passage, and that's where we are. And uh, there's also the possibility, if you would like, if you find it helpful, to take some notes. Or later on, when uh, you want to think more about the stuff we talked about this morning, uh, you would have the opportunity to go back over these passages and consider them on your own and and see what you think. So, uh, let's begin our study of Ecclesiastes. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes. My Bible, it's right after Proverbs. should be there in yours as well. We'll start with the first verse. The first verse isn't actually the first verse. See, already it's confusing. The first verse is actually the title. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's the title. These are the words of Solomon. And then the text begins with verse 2. This is where he starts talking about what he wants to talk about. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word vanity... Uh, means a, a vapor, a mist. It referring to that uh, that steam on the top of a lake or a river very early in the morning, just a real light mist that blows away by breakfast time. There's nothing to it. It's not substantial. So it, it, in essence, he's talking about it's all it's smoke. And so what he's saying is, life's empty. Life is just smoke. Everything's smoke. It all blows away. It's not worth much. You know, I know how he feels. I've had days like that. I wake up and I think about my life, what I'm doing. I say, it's just smoke. Or what I'm thinking, I say, ah, it's just smoke. So, I know, you know, I know where he's coming from. But I don't know about you. Who needs this? Who needs to read a book by a guy that's having a bad day? Who <laughs> wakes up depressed. He looks around, life's a bummer. Goes out, kicks the dog, yells at the kids, slams the door in his wife's face and runs out and writes this book. You know, I've got problems of my own. I don't need somebody bringing me down. And this book has a reputation of being a downer. 
Uh, it's often said that this is written from man's perspective, apart from God, that it's a, a hopeless book, a cynical book. And at first appearance, it looks that way. In uh, chapter uh, 10, I believe it is, 19, he says, money answers everything. Well, that's about as cynical as you can get. You know, so at first appearance, this really does look like a hopeless, cynical, downer book. But I hope to demonstrate this morning that that first impression, like so many first impressions, is, is exactly the opposite of the facts. That this is a book of joy, a book of, of delight and enjoyment. In fact, in ancient uh, Israel, this book was read during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And that was a feast that was, was to commemorate or to, to celebrate God's presence in Israel. And it was against the law to be sad during that week. They figured if you, want it, if you have problems, that's fine. Worry about it before or after. We're going to celebrate now. And if you've got to worry about something, put it aside for this week. You can get back to it. Right now, we don't want you bringing anybody down. And so it was illegal to be sad during this week. And this book was read not to bring people down, but because it is a joy, because it is a celebration, a book of rejoicing. Now, it doesn't mean it's a superficial book of everything's wonderful, looking around and saying, oh, isn't that wonderful? Oh, isn't that wonderful? It's not that type of book. It's, a, it's an honest book, yeah, sometimes a brutally honest book. In fact, uh, the writer, Solomon, in the last chapter, he describes the truth of this book as goads, or cattle prods, or nails driven, driven home. And those aren't comfortable images because this book doesn't make us comfortable. It forces us to think, and that's always uncomfortable. So this is a, a joyous book, but not a superficial book, an honest book. Let's see if we can uh, begin to get an idea for what it's about. Now, one way you uh, find a theme in a, in a writing is to look through it and look for a, a concept or a phrase that that keeps coming up over and over. Because if you see it spaced through the book, and he's talking about the same idea over and over, well then, probably that's one of the main ideas of the book that he's dealing with, that he's addressing this issue over and over. One such uh, concept or phrase is uh, a gift of God, or from the hand of God, or given of God. These, these phrases crop up frequently in the book. And this is one of the themes that everything we have that's good in life, that's enjoyable in life, comes from a good and generous God. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to realize that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat, and who can have enjoyment without him? So he's saying, eat and enjoy it. Drink and enjoy it. I, uh, after I preached this uh, last hour, somebody came up and said, Oh boy, I'm on my way to lunch. I'm going to apply immediately what you've been teaching. But he says, it's good. Eat and enjoy it. Drink and enjoy it. Labor, work, and enjoy it. Now, that may sound spooky. That may sound like uh, hedonism or epicureanism, where you say, eat, drink, and be merry. Blow it all out today because tomorrow we die. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, eat and enjoy it. Drink and enjoy it because you've got a good God who gave it to you 
to enjoy and enjoy it with him for who can enjoy it without him last Friday was my nephew's uh, birthday and we went up to grandpa's house and grandpa had given him for his birthday one of these video games uh, in television and uh, we would notice as the day progressed that grandpa and Kevin were nowhere to be found and would look around and find him downstairs playing on the video game. Grandpa yelling and, and getting all upset trying to kill all the aliens and Kevin just having a great time. And the joy of that gift was not only in the giving of it. The joy was in enjoying it together. The grandfather and the grandson. And the, and the, the, the benefit that was to their relationship. And that's what God's talking about here. God is giving good gifts. We'll enjoy them with him. And allow it to enhance that relationship. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 10. Most of these references are fairly close. I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate, literally beautiful, in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. So that without this, man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. What he's saying is God has organized life. God has organized reality. And he's placed man, given man a role in that order. And he's placed within man a desire to know him and a desire to understand, to see how it all fits together. And in that context, life is to be unashamedly enjoyed. That the good things God has given are to be enjoyed. Look with me at uh, 3.22, just down the page. And I have seen that nothing is better than that a man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? The point of this is that a man should enjoy what he's doing, because you don't know what comes next. Don't waste your time saying, well, tomorrow everything will get all right, and I'll enjoy it then. Or don't spend your time worrying about tomorrow. Something horrible is going to happen tomorrow. I'm dreading what's going to happen tomorrow, so I can't be happy and enjoy today. No, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It hasn't happened. But you do have what God has given you today, and you can enjoy it. My mother used to wake me up every morning with uh, Psalm 118:24. Rejoice! Or this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And every day is the day the Lord has made. And we can rejoice and be glad in the good things that he's given us on that day. Look at, uh, let's see, chapter 5, 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and beautiful. To eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Literally, this is his share or his part. This is the place that God has given. This is what God has given him to do. You notice the uh, emphasis in all of these uh, verses about enjoying labor. Work, hard work, whether done at home 
or in a job outside the home is good. Working hard is a good thing to be enjoyed. Finally, look at uh, chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. He says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. God has set it up this way. This is the way it's supposed to be. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Now that may sound a little strange. When he's talking about white garments, white clothes, in that culture, it was a very dirty, dusty culture. And it was awfully hard to keep your clothes white. And once they got soiled, it was very difficult to get them white again. So white garments were reserved for special occasions, for celebrations. They were the best clothes. It was your, your dress-up. And he's saying, enjoy it. Wear it all the time. Enjoy your good things. Enjoy your best dresses. Enjoy your clothes that God has given you. And he says, and may your oil never be lacking on your head. Now, he's not talking about taking a can of 30 weight and dumping it on your head. For us, it's a little bit hard to identify with how oil poured all over your head is going to feel good. But again, realize they're in a very dry climate. Baths were somewhat uh, rare, infrequent, and their skin would dry out and it would crack and get irritated. And it was a very enjoyable, a pleasurable experience to have the sweet oil poured on your head and to let it run down and soothe your whole body. Now, we have humidifiers and we take baths frequently and have Jurgens lotion and all this other stuff. So we may not be able to identify. I think if he were writing this today, he might have say, said, uh, and may the bubbles never stop in your jacuzzi. <laughs> that you enjoy experiences. You enjoy the fruit of your labor. Enjoy the things, the possessions God has given you. And that's his point, that they are to be enjoyed. And then in verse, verse 9, picking up again, Enjoy life with the woman who you, whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil which you've labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all your might. And then he finishes the verse by saying, Because your time is short, and if you're going to do it, you need to do it now. So he's affirming uh, marriage relationship and all that that involves, the intimacy and, and sharing ideas, sharing emotions, sharing thoughts, the physical, sexual relationship. He's affirming it. And he's saying, and work is good, hard work, doing it with all your might, and it's good. What we've got here is a call to enjoy. That's what he's telling us to do. Realize we've got a good, generous God, and we honor him by enjoying his gifts. We honor him by enjoying this life he's given, every part of it. He goes on and affirms wisdom and knowledge, and he affirms family. He affirms the things that we really do find valuable. And we need to realize this and affirm it ourselves. So often we get it get involved in the problems. And this book does not deny the problems. Chapter 7, the majority of it is devoted to a perspective on difficulties and on problems. Now, the problems are there. But we so often mire up, we bog down in our focus on the problems and we allow them to rob us of the joy of all the goodness that God has given us. 
And that's what it's a call not to let happen. To enjoy what God has given us. Not denying the problems, but not letting them take over. Okay, so that's one of the primary themes of this book. And it's a primary theme we need to realize and remind ourselves in as we get bogged down in life. That we can enjoy it. And we can enjoy it with him. For many, this is a little bit spooky to say this. Because you sound like you're opening the door to just partying. And just blowing it all out. And not caring about anybody else, but going out and having nothing but fun. And being irresponsible. And and another thing that, that would bother me if I was out there listening to this. Is that we haven't talked about all these vanities. I mean, we started off and he said, vanity of vanities says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all smoke. It's all a downer. It's all worthless. It's all empty. Now what we've talked about has has not dealt with that. And we need to. We need to understand. Look also at at, um, 2.22 and 23. Remember he's been saying how good hard work was. How valuable that it's to be satisfying. It's a positive thing. And now look at verse 22 of chapter 2. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. I can identify with that. This too is vanity. He's been saying how good work is. Now he says, man, it's smoke. It don't make it. It's not worth it. It just wears you out. It's a bummer. And just up the page in uh, verse 15... He says, Then I said to myself, As the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I become extremely wise? So I said to myself, This too is vanity. This too is smoke. It's a waste. It's empty. And he just affirmed that wisdom was good. And knowledge is good. And now he's saying, Ah, it's smoke. It's empty. 5.10 And 11. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance or possessions with its income. This, too, is vanity. This, too, is smoke. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what's the advantage? What's the use? It's all vanity. It's all smoke. But Dr. Gunner, he just said that that, uh, the possessions God has given us, we can enjoy. And now he's saying, ah, but there's no satisfaction there. You just want more, and it just gets uncomfortable and, and, and it just robs life. So what's the use? Why bother? You know, it sounds like the guy's seriously depressed, really upset with life. And he goes on and he takes shots at everything that he's affirmed. He takes shots at family. He takes shots at food and, and, and drink and saying, ah, it, it doesn't make it. It's not satisfying. It's not what you need. So what's going on here? The guy's contradicting himself. I think he's making a point. And perhaps we can understand that point. Now, one way to, um, to get an idea of what the point of a book is, is to turn to the back and see if he tells you what the point is. <laughs> Chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, verse 13, he tells us what the point is. He says, the conclusion, the point, when all has been heard is, fear God. And keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. Literally, that's a a difficult uh, uh, phrasing. Because what it literally says, it says, This is mannishness. Or this is what humanness is. 
This is what God has for being a human. That you, uh, in order to be fully human, this is what being a human is all about, that you fear God and keep his commandments. For, or because, verse 14, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. God is the one who put it all together. He knows the difference between good and evil. He's the one who knows. So somehow what the point of this book, and we'll have to to work this out, somehow the point of this book is that to be fully human, to enjoy life as a human as God intended it to be enjoyed, one must fear God and obey his commandments because God is the one who knows good from evil. Now, let's uh, hesitate here and... and, uh, define some terms because these terms often confuse us such as the fear of God to fear God now this is a a very important concept for the whole Old Testament over and over it refers to the fear of God and it's important that we understand it let me uh, emphatically state what it is not first fear of God is not a terror of God it's not a cringing fearfulness that uh, he's looking to zap us for having fun or that we've broken some minute rule and he's out after us. That's not what the fear of the Lord is. In fact, uh, in most of the times that this is, is stated, that the term is used, fear of the Lord or fear of God or fear God, it's used in parallel to loving God because the two are virtually synonymous. Fear of God and love of God are, are, are the same. It says, fear God and love him forever. That's what we're encouraged to do. What it means to fear God is to trust him with the result that our behavior is affected. It is trust that leads to action. Let me illustrate this. In Genesis, when Abraham uh, attempted to sacrifice Isaac because God told him to, God said, now I know that you fear me. And God wasn't saying, now I know that you're scared of me. Realize Abraham loved his son. This is a son that he had all his hopes in. He wouldn't kill him because of fear. There was nothing horrible enough that God could have done to Abraham to scare him into killing his son. He wasn't fearing for his life. Rather, he trusted God. He said, if God wants me to do this, he must have a good reason. And he'll work it out. In fact, the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that, that Abraham thought that God would raise Isaac back to life. That's what he was thinking. That God would resurrect, would bring Isaac back to life. So his action was not out of fear, it was out of trust. God will work it out. God's got it figured out. I trust him. And that's what we mean by fear of the Lord. So there's somehow uh, being human is learning to trust God. Learning to to say, well, I guess he knows what he's talking about. He put it all together and he did a good job of it. And he designed it in a certain way. So I'll trust him. And it says there in verse 14, because or for he's the one who judges between good and evil. He's the one that knows the difference between good and evil. Let's look at those terms good and evil. Unfortunately, as soon as you hear good and evil, uh, it sounds religious. And we start thinking, well, good, religiously good means theologically proper. And religiously evil means theologically improper. And that's all there is to the word. 
and that God is up there trying to decide whether that was a proper thought or an improper thought, or a proper act or an improper act. And we have the distorted notion that things can be theologically proper, good, and still be a drag, and still rob us of the joy of life, and still destroy our, our life and, and, and bring us down. Or that things can be theologically improper, that is, evil, but still be exactly the thing that you need. Just what will make you satisfied, what will, what will be a constructive and a positive thing in your life. This is a, a really unfortunate way of thinking. It really does violence to our view of God. That he's up there saying, okay, that was proper, that was improper. I don't care whether it was good. I don't care whether, whether it was beneficial. But it was just improper. So it's wrong. And it does violence to the, the, the uh, language of Scripture. Let me read you the, the definitions of evil and good in the Hebrew language, of the word that's used here. If I can find it. Okay, evil. The word translated evil means evil, misery, brokenness, ruin. That it's not only talking about something that's proper or improper. It's talking about something that's going to destroy your life. That may seem good and positive, but the end is going to be disastrous to the human body or the human mind or the human spirit. It is theologically improper, but it's also destructive. And good, it means good or pleasing, beneficial, prosperous, healing. It is theologically proper, but it's also what's going to build your life up. Be pleasing, be good, be enjoyable, bring the joy back to life. So it only makes sense that we trust God, because He knows the difference. He knows good from evil. And He knows the end of a thing from the beginning. And He's not fooled by appearances. We are. We look at this thing and we say, this is just what I need. It'll solve my problems. But we don't know what's going to happen a year down the road or six months down the road or tomorrow. We think it looks so good, but God says, no, wait a minute. That looks good, but don't be fooled by appearances. It's going to wipe you out. It's going to turn into a personal disaster. It's going to tear you apart. And it's going to hurt the people around you. Because God is not fooled by appearances. And God knows the end from the beginning. So when you put all this together, that part of being a human being, part of enjoying who we are and what we are to be, is fearing God, trusting Him. And as the one who put everything together, obeying Him. Because He knows good from evil. He knows what's going to wipe us out and what's going to build us up. So once you've made the decision to trust God, obedience is the only intelligent course. Okay, so this defines the point of the book, that somehow, uh, to be human, we need to fear God, obey his commandments, because he is the one who knows good from evil. It's the way he put it together. When uh, I was in Mexico last month, yeah, it was last month, um, I was visiting the Brambilas, and they have this big, round jigsaw puzzle. And they, they put it together as a family, and it, apparently that was a meaningful time for them. So they picked the whole thing up very carefully and have hung it on the wall, and it's, it's on their wall. And I was up looking at it one day, 
and I noticed that right just off the center was a, a piece missing. And uh, you had to look closely before you noticed that piece was gone, and the puzzle held together fine without it. A lot of times people compare our lives to a jigsaw puzzle, and that if you leave God out, you've got a God-shaped hole in your life. When I was uh, a little kid, we lived near San Francisco, and we would sometimes go into Chinatown and buy these little pop guns with a cork on the end, or these paper flowers, or these little things that you can buy in Chinatown that you can't get anyplace else. One of the things we'd get were these wooden puzzles that were made of these intricately shaped little pieces of wood that when they're all put together, they made a shape of a star, or a square, or a bull, or something like that. And there was always one key piece that held all the rest of the pieces together. And once you remove that piece, you couldn't move it at all, because otherwise it would just fall apart. And I remember I used to try to get that piece out, because I was going to take them apart one by one and see how it goes back together. And invariably, as soon as I got that key piece out, I ended up with a pile of little funny shaped pieces of wood and I had to go find a brother or my father to put it back together for me. Life is a whole lot more like those Chinese puzzles than it is a jigsaw puzzle. The effect of not having God in our lives is far more profound than having a little hole someplace off to the side. In fact, a life without God can only temporarily and precariously be held together. But we need God. And he's the one that makes sense of all of life. And this is the point of the vanities. This is the point that uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes has been making when he describes all these vanities. Whenever you take life apart and you focus in on one little piece, the joy and the enjoyment evaporates. It disappears on you. And you're left with smoke. Remember, he he affirmed how good work was. And work is good. And it's satisfying when we work hard and we do it with God. But when we leave God out, the satisfaction dries up and it begins to dominate us. And it leads to ulcers and heart attacks and, and breakdowns. Or it dries up and it just becomes a drudgery. And work is not enjoyed. And work is not enjoyed. But again, it's something to be enjoyed with God. Or possessions. God has given them to be enjoyed. But when we leave God out, they end up owning us rather than we them. Their joy quickly leaves and it evaporates. It turns to smoke. It's there a little bit, but it blows away. And you can't find it anymore. The same is true of, of food and drink. They are, they are incredibly pleasant creations to be enjoyed, to be a delight for us. But when we leave God out, we just become addicts. Marriage and sex was intended to be a, a, a thrill and a joy. But when you leave God out, sex just becomes a slave master. Whatever it is of the life that God has given us, When you take a piece of it and you say, this is the answer, whether it's work, whether it's play, whether it's it's marriage or children, whether it's uh, wisdom and knowledge, whether it's reputation, recreation, anything you do, anything, any part of the life that God has given you, if you take that out and you say, 
This is the answer. It turns to smoke. It evaporates on us. And we don't, uh, we don't get the enjoyment that we were intended to get out of life. Let's go back over a couple of verses that we covered before and see how this fits in. Because this really is the point of Ecclesiastes. Let's go back to 2.24. We're back up. If you're looking on your outline, we're on section 2. I uh, rearranged the order since the first service, so don't get confused. (laughs) It's a confusing time. We're on gift of God. Or, excuse me, I'm sorry. We're on uh, fear of God. Number 13. Anyway, 2.24, and I'm going to read through 26. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity. And striving after the wind. What he's saying there is that uh, God has given to the person who is good in his sight uh, wisdom and knowledge and joy, these good things. But to the sinner, and that's an interesting word, this, the word for sinner literally means one who has wandered off on his own, is missing the goal. To the one that's wandered off on his own, it all turns to smoke, it's all vanity, it's all empty. And of no substance, of no joy. Look at 3.10 again, through 14. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, without which man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. Again, he says, God ordered life. He put it together. And he put man in that life. And he gave man a desire to to know God and a desire to understand the purpose of life, to understand how it all fits together, to understand how how uh, psychology and theology and zoology and geology and all the other ologies fit together. And what is man's role in it? Where's his place? How does he fit in the picture? And where does he find satisfaction? And man tries, strives to understand these things. But the vanities keep getting in the way. The smoke gets in his eyes and he can't understand because it all starts to evaporate as he focuses in on the different parts. Verse 14 same passage keep going I know that everything God does will remain forever there is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it for God has so worked that men should fear him God's designed it that way that that's the plan that you can't understand it unless you start there unless you start with this trust in God this relationship with God because that's the way he designed it he wants us to experience life but he wants us to experience it with him so that we can have it fully and be protected from the enslavement that it can become Look also at um, 
7.18. In your uh, bulletin it says 9.18, and that's a mistake. It's 7.18. It is good that you grasp one thing and not let go of the other. For one who fears God comes forth with both of them. So it's good that you hold one thing and that you hold the other, because if you fear God, you got them both. And he's talking about a balance in life, that you keep things in balance. Now, what is he, what is he balancing? This may sound a little strange to you at first, uh, because it is strange at first. But look at verse 16. Do not be excessively righteousness, or excessively righteous, and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked, and don't be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, he's not saying, uh, okay, sin, but just sin a little. That's the way you keep things in balance. That's not really what he's saying. It looks like he's saying that. But the, the form of the, the verb here about being righteous really implies a, a, a self-righteousness. And I think what he's saying is, don't be obnoxiously legalistic and uptight about life. Why should you rob yourself of all the goodness in life that God wants to give you? And don't be foolish and wicked on the other hand. Don't go around violating the commands of God because you know what the end of that's going to be. The end of that is smoke. The end of that is enslavement. The end of that is, is, is disaster. So don't be uptight and fail to enjoy the goodness of life. But at the same time, don't be foolish and get yourself wiped out because there's a lot of people out there who are trying to enjoy life and all they're doing is getting slammed. All they're doing is wiping themselves out, destroying themselves. And that's a balance we need. And key to that balance is our relationship to God, that we fear God. Look at 8, 12 through 13, or 12 and 13. And this will be the last that we look at. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times a day and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and who fear him openly, but it will not be well for the evil man. And he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. The term to be well means pleasant, enjoyable, sweet, agreeable, good. What he's saying here is I know that it will be good. It will be enjoyable for those who fear God and who fear him openly. But it will not be good. It will not be rich. It will not be enjoyable for the, for the evil man who does not fear God. Fearing God is the key to the richness of life, to the enjoyment of all it's intended to be. And it is intended to be good, and it is intended to be a delight. Remember, that's one of the main points, that life is good. And we need to hold to that, but we need to hold to that in our relationship with God. This is the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. That life is good, but as soon as we leave God out of it, it turns to smoke. It turns empty on us. Let me conclude by making an appeal. An appeal for honesty. This is a very honest book. Uh, Solomon doesn't pull punches. He calls them like he sees them. In parts where he's dealing with tragedy and death, he says... Uh, this is rotten. He doesn't come up with some little, well, this is okay because of this and this. He says, it's rotten. It's a drag. I don't like it. It's evil. He calls it like he sees it. He's honest. And we need to be honest. Solomon doesn't say, 
well, this would be, wouldn't be smoke if only I had this, or if only I had more of that, if only I had less of this, or less of this person. That's not what he's saying. He says, this is smoke, and I know it, and I'm willing to admit it. And I want to challenge you to consider your ways like Terry uh, suggested last week. And to look at your life. Is it satisfying? Are the parts fitting together? Is, do they satisfy? Are they rich? Is it smoke? If it's smoke, call it smoke. And realize that the reason it's smoke is because you're leaving God out. And be honest with God. God uh, wants to turn us on to the difference between good and evil. He wants to be involved in our thinking. He wants to be involved in our experimentation of life, in our exploration. Realize it's a lie of the enemy that God does not want us to explore life. Now, it is true that God has been very explicit about many things in Scripture. And we're foolish to try the things he says not to try and to not do the things he says to do, like, like loving people with our possessions and giving sacrificially and serving each other. We already know that that is where richness and, and, and joy can be found. And we're foolish not to because we know the end of those things. It's smoke if we don't do them or if we do the things that he says clearly not to do, it's smoke and destruction. But there's much of life that we are exploring and we all explore. And when we accept the lie of, of, of the enemy, we say, well, God doesn't really like exploration, so I can't really take him along. I can't really think these things through with him because he doesn't really like it. Well, don't assume you know what God likes. Talk it over with him. Be, know your Bible so you know what he really thinks about certain things. But on the rest, talk it through with him. Work it through with him. Don't assume his displeasure. When you do that, you end up confused and you end up dominated by things. But when you take him along, you think it through and you say, yeah, that really is smoke. I don't want to do that again. Or you think it through and you say, that really was rich. That was really what God wants. And you talk it over with him. Now, don't, uh, as you're going out today, don't stop and say, oh, I have been leaving God out. And get consumed with guilt. That's counterproductive. Realize that the reminder to bring God back in is of the Holy Spirit. And it's a good thing. So thank him and open the conversation and say, God, let's go from here. Let's think about it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk it through. And talk it through with each other. The third thing, I want to challenge you to be honest with each other. Because we're in this together. And we need each other's experience. We need to be talking it through. You might think, well, if I tell them what I did, they'll think, gee, what a jerk. Or that guy's not really Christian. Or this or that. And I'm not, again, I'm not encouraging foolishness, but we all act foolish. Well, let's not waste it when we do. Let's share it. Let's call it smoke and tell our brothers and our sisters that I tried this and it turned out to be smoke. Or I tried that and it turned out to be rich and good. People may react wrongly. People may look at you and go, ooh, you did that? But that shouldn't stop us. It didn't stop God when he wrote this book. This is an honest book. And every one of the heroes of the Old Testament, David, Elijah, every one of the heroes of the New Testament besides Jesus Christ himself, we not only have recorded his excesses, but we have recorded his foolishness and his folly. And we learn from it, and we need to learn from each other. So we need to be honest with each other and open with each other and involving each other in our exploration of life, discussing it, working it through, so that we together 
can hold on to the good and enjoy the richness of what God has given us and turn away from the smoke, leave it behind and not waste our time. God's greatest gift is his son. And that's the, the, his plan for his son was not to condemn the world, not to bring us down, not to put a heavy trip on us, but to save us, to be a joy that we might experience life with him. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, I am genuinely sorry for you because there's a lot of life you're missing. There's a lot of richness that you don't know. That condition needn't continue. It needn't persist. Open your conversation with him. Start talking to him. Start involving him in your life. And see how rich God can make your life. Let's um, turn in the back of your hymnal to uh, number 620. I'd like to do a responsive reading. You'll read the dark parts. In the very back, there's a, there's a series of responsive readings. You read the, I'll read the light parts, you read the dark parts. Number 620. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who will condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Let's enjoy life. Let's enjoy it thoroughly. But let's enjoy it with God. Trusting Him. Obeying His commands. Realizing that He's the one who knows good from evil. And He's anxious to guide us, to direct us, to be involved in the, the exploration of life with us. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise You. You are a generous God. You are the creator and giver of everything good. And we want to enjoy it with You. We want to appreciate you, even as we eat, to be thanking you for the, the flavor and the enjoyment of it. We want to be uh, thanking you for the richness of, of rest and sleep and the goodness of, of hard work. Lord, we want to involve you in every part of our life. and Continue through your spirit to remind us. And through the day as we go to, to, to remind us to involve you, to not leave you out, to not get confused, to not have life dry up on us. I praise you for your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have this relationship with you. And I praise you for the, the wonderfulness of that gift. We just uh, desire to fully enjoy you, to fully honor you. In your Son's name, amen.